this morning we are going to start a eight-week series uh, working through the book of First Thessalonians, and we're calling it Something Better Coming, and that's good news for us, isn't it? That this isn't the best that it gets. For those in Christ, there is something far better coming. Uh, Todd was going to kick it off last week, but was hit with some health stuff, so we're thankful for Carrie for filling in, pinch hitting last minute. Um, he served as well last week. Today, though, we're going to try to cover the text that was scheduled for last week, as well as the text that was scheduled today. So we're just going to work our way through it and see what happens. Uh, thanks, Zach, again for reading. What a blessing. Uh, you are not just in your reading, but you are as a person to this body. We're thankful for you. And let's just dive in. Uh, trust in the Holy Spirit to teach us this morning, to convict us this morning, and to reshape us in the gospel this morning. So if you're new to the Bible, 1 Thessalonians is a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote around 51 AD uh, to a church that was planted six months prior in the city of Thessalonica. And as we saw a few weeks back in Acts 17, this city was very hostile to Paul. In, in, his, in Paul's teaching about the suffering Messiah, it infuriated some of the Jews to the point that they formed a mob and ran him out of town. Remember that story? And then... These same Jews were so mad at Paul that when he fled 100 miles away to Berea, they tracked him down there and ran him out of that city too. This was a place of conflict to the gospel. So put this letter in that context. If that's how Paul was treated in Thessalonica, what do you think it was like for the church that was planted there? Well, I'm sure they faced the very same opposition the moment they put their faith in Christ, and, and yet we'll see momentarily that this brand new church, like I said, six months old, this brand new church somehow doesn't just thrive, doesn't just survive, they thrive. And this morning as we walk through chapter one, we're going to see a six-step process of what I'm calling gospel transformation. And then we'll jump into chapter two and look at a paradox of gospel ministry. So if you're a note taker, six-step process and then a paradox. And though this is the story of the church at Thessalonica, we're going to see this morning that this same process and paradox has been repeated time and time again throughout church history. And you're probably going to see some of your own story in the story of Melanie Parth in this process as well. We're going to have to jump around in the text. The process isn't in sequential order, but I believe it's going to be helpful for us to see this morning. So, Again, six-step process of gospel transformation. Step number one, the gospel comes. Look at verse four. He says, knowing brethren, beloved by God, his choice of you. So just a reminder, if you're in Christ, you are deeply loved by God. And you're chosen specifically, purposefully, intentionally by God. It's not an accident that you're in Christ. He chose you because he loves you. Verse 5, for our gospel, so that's the good news of what Jesus has done for us, right? The gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. So forgive me this morning, I'll probably cough a handful of times, I'm going to be chugging this water, got a little sickness that's still kind of in my chest here, so I'm going to be drinking water, so hopefully that doesn't distract, but... What I just said about drinking water distracted, so <laughs> forgive me for that. So we see here that the gospel is 
a word that must be proclaimed. But it's more than a word. In order for the gospel to have impact, the Holy Spirit must provide the power. We can't talk people into the kingdom. We can't argue or rationalize people into the kingdom. But we do need to speak and trust the Spirit to do His convicting work through our gospel words. The image I have of this is kind of like a bonfire, right? You lay down logs or you get a bunch of pallets and you assemble them together. That's the words that we speak. And you might even dose it with some lighter fluid. That's, you've thought through the words that you speak and you feel really good about your gospel presentation. But unless the Holy Spirit comes and lights it, ignites the flame, all you have is a pile of wood doused in lighter fluid, right? Our words alone are not sufficient. The Holy Spirit must ignite the flame. Without the Spirit of God, the Word of God doesn't ignite. It doesn't convict. There is no light created. There is no heat created without the Holy Spirit's power. Even though words of truth may have been spoken. This morning, I'm going to speak words of truth, but unless the Spirit of God comes in power and ignites those truths in our hearts, there's no gospel transformation. Without the Spirit, people can't see the truth and people aren't captured by the truth. Paul could have proclaimed gospel words all day long, but only the Spirit could provide the power to convict. So that's step one of this process of gospel transformation. The gospel comes to us. It's not a work we do, it's a work God does. God moves first and sends his good news to us. And through the Spirit, the gospel words are ignited in power. So that's step one. Step two, people receive it. Look at verse six. And you also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit. So we see the Spirit's work yet again. He's not only involved in the gospel word coming, but in the gospel word's reception. Even in the midst of terrible persecution, persecution, forgive me, the Thessalonians received the word with joy, which of course is a fruit of the Spirit. So the gospel comes, people receive it. Step three, they turn to God. Look at verse 9 and 10. For they themselves report about us what kind of reception we had with you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God, and to wait for the Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. So notice that they didn't turn from idols and then turn to God. The turning from idols results after they turned to God. And this is very important that we see this. They didn't get their life together. They they didn't clean up all the idols first. The gospel came. They received it. They turned to God, and then God started to change them, helping them uproot and root out the idols of their hearts. The truth is, we don't deal with our idols first and then turn to God. We turn to God, we submit our lives to him, surrender full control to him, and then he starts to walk us through the process of idol uprooting. Christian life is not so much about what we do, trying to fix ourselves, it's about daily turning to God and letting him do the uprooting work in our hearts. 
And notice too, they, they turn to God from idols in order to serve him. This word serve carries the idea of, of being controlled by the true and living God. So daily, as we're turning to the Lord, he's uprooting the idols from our heart, and we're serving him. We're submitting control to him, complete control to the true and living God. You know, the truth is, in Christ, you are no longer controlled by sin and idolatry. You, in Christ, now have the choice to choose who today you will serve. And we get to choose to be controlled by the true and living God rather than controlled by our sin and idolatry. And as they were controlled by him, notice in verse 10, they were living, looking back in faith at the resurrection as they looked forward in hope to his return, waiting on Jesus to return to complete the rescue. So looking back, looking ahead, as we turn to God moment by moment, this is a recipe for a rich Christian life. And I'd exhort us all this morning, let's live this way, looking back on what Christ has done, looking ahead to what he will do, as day by day, moment by moment, we turn our eyes to him. So the gospel comes, people receive it, they turn to God, here's step four. They grow. And the way I see it in this text is that imitation becomes example. That's a sign of growth. Look at verse six. You also became imitators of us, this is Paul speaking, and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit, verse seven, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. So initially they grew by imitating Paul. Who Paul was imitating who? Jesus. He says in 1 Corinthians, imitate me as I imitate Christ. So this, these young Christians, they grew first by imitating. And that's how many of us have grown. We, we see people who are a few steps down the road and we're like, I want that. I'm going to do what he does. I'm going to follow the path that he's following. And as we see Christ in each other, we get to pursue that. We get to imitate that. And that's one of the joys of being part of a gospel community like this. So first they grew by imitation, but then their imitation became example. Over time, in this case very quickly, they became an example, Paul says, to all believers. And we see in verse 3 that they're an example of at least three things. So let's look at verse 3 together. Constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the presence of our God and Father. So you see the three things there that they imitated and then became examples of? The people in this church were an example of faith that works. And just to be honest, I'm stealing this straight out of Todd's notes that he had planned for last week. So this is Todd speaking now. Faith that works. Their faith was so deeply rooted in Christ that it affected everything. It affected how they thought, how they lived, how they spoke, how they related to one another, and how they served other people. As James tells us, faith without works is dead. And this young church became an example of faith that works. But they also modeled love that labors. And that is active, self-sacrificing love. 
Love that works hard to care for the emotional and physical needs of other people, particularly in this case, in the midst of intense persecution. Love that labors is a kind of love that, that leads us to lay down our lives for others. Their love labored. And third, they were an example of hope that is steadfast because it was firmly rooted in the triune God. All throughout this text, we read of Jesus Christ, our Lord, God the Father, and the Holy Spirit who has come to us. The triune God is involved in this community's life, and he's bringing about these fruits of, of who he is. Faith that works, love that labors, and hope that is steadfast. And honestly, this is incredible, especially for such a young church like the church in Beth Thessalonica. So that's step one through four of the process of gospel transformation. You ready for step five? All right, I'm going to take a sip. As God intends for every church and for every Christian, we see the flow of how the gospel works. The gospel comes in and transforms them, and then the gospel shoots out from among them. Gospel in, gospel out. That's God's desire for every Christian's life in every local church. So we see that in verse 8. For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you. It's projected, it's propelled, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth, so that you have no need to say anything. The word of the Lord sounds forth from them. So when I was growing up, um, my family lived on a cul-de-sac uh, up a hill, and down the street from us, there was a house at the bottom of the street, maybe a quarter mile away, and when I was very young, I remember, maybe elementary school, I would hear, from what I could pick up, a kid trying to learn the electric guitar, right? He was probably in middle school, maybe high school, but a quarter mile down the street, I could hear him practicing at any moment of any day. Early in the morning, late at night, I could hear exactly what he was playing and exactly what he was doing. His amp must have been turned up to 11, and I'm sure to this day he has absolutely no hearing. But his word, his music, sounded forth from his house with doors closed, windows shut, a quarter mile away. That's the same of what the gospel does in a community like ours. As the word is proclaimed to one another, it begins to amplify and multiply, and it comes in and then it shoots out from among us. God's word is amplified through the life an example of this church at Thessalonica. Now, in God's sovereign plan, of course, Thessalonica was a, a commercial center. center. Uh, people would travel in from all over the world to buy and sell goods here. And when they encountered the Christians here in the city, they noticed something different. And they were deeply impacted by it. So that when they left the city to go back home or onto their next stop, they would share with others what they had experienced. The sound carries. The gospels amplify. Essentially, this church was situated in a hub city, economically and geographically. And not too different from Lubbock, Texas, right? Thousands of people a year come here for Texas Tech or other opportunities, are here for maybe just a short time, and then go back to wherever they came. What if God was to use Melanie Park Church and other faithful gospel-centered churches here in the city 
like he did in the church in Thessalonica. People come in, people go out, and they experience the gospel that's come in, and then the gospel that shoots out. What if God were to so transform the people in this local church by the gospel that as others find their way in here through relationships, through the internet, as people find their way here, they experience something like they've never experienced before. And then when it's time for them to go back home or onto their next stop, they've been so impacted by the gospel here in this place that they can't help but take it wherever they go. And as a result, the gospel spreads. The gospel sounds forth from among us, all over the United States, all over the world. I think this, in part, is what we see God doing here in this church, in this season. And our prayer is that he would do it all the more. That this little church here in West Texas would be so transformed by the gospel that has come in, that it just launches out. It sounds forth from among us. How do you feel about that? Wouldn't that be cool to see? It's fantastic that God is changing us, but the gospel was never meant to terminate on us. The gospel was never meant to come in and settle in one place. The gospel in its DNA expands, it multiplies, it grows. So as it comes in, my prayer is that it would shoot out. All right, so that's step one through five. We've almost seen the whole process of gospel transformation. Let's repeat it together. The gospel comes in. People receive it, they turn to God, then they grow through imitation and example, and then what happens? The word sounds forth. Here's the last step that I see in this text. Number six, we thank God for his work of transformation. Look at verse two. We give thanks to God always for you, making mention of you in our prayers. What an amazing process this has been that we see in this church here. It starts with God, it ends with God. The gospel comes in, the gospel shoots out, and there's no doubt in anyone's mind that the Holy Spirit has made all this possible. He's provided the power every step of the way. And this story of the church at Thessalonica is still impacting us 2,000 years later. And since that day, God has rewritten this story time and time again in churches all over this country, all over our world, and I pray Melanie Park continues to be one of those churches. So that's the process. Now let's shift gears to the paradox. So in, in verse 6 of chapter 1, we saw that these Christians imitated Paul, right, who was imitating Christ. Chapter 2, I think, zooms in and helps us see exactly what they were imitating. In chapter 2, Paul provides a glimpse of how he operated in ministry. And it presents us, I think, a helpful paradox to consider. So let's look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain. But after we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid much opposition. For our exhortation does not come from error or impu impurity or by way of deceit, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak. Not as pleasing men, but God who examines our hearts. Verse 5. For we never came with flattering speech, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. 
nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, even though as apostles of Christ we might have asserted our authority. So let's, let's pause there. I want to talk through these verses here. So here we see a few things in, in this passage. First, excuse me, the gospel of God must be spoken. You know, there's this saying, preach the gospel always when necessary, use words. That's not quite accurate. The gospel needs to be spoken always. It's not enough to demonstrate the gospel with our lives, though that is very important, as we'll see momentarily. We must always declare the gospel with our lips. Lives and limbs. Demonstration and declaration. Serving and speaking. Because at the end of the day, the gospel is a word, right? And that word, Romans 10 tells us, must be heard in order to be believed. And in order to be heard, we need to speak. We must never as a church or as individuals grow silent. We must learn to speak the gospel. We must grow in speaking the gospel. And we must keep on speaking the gospel to one another and to our unbelieving friends. As one pastor has said, part of our life together as a community is to grow in gospel fluency, right? It's like learning a new language. You, you can't just learn a language mentally. You have to practice it verbally. Speaking it out loud to one another is how we develop a language. And it's only as we speak the gospel that our understanding of the gospel deepens and develops. It's great to think about the gospel, but it grows deeper and deeper and deeper in our hearts the more that we speak it to one another, the more that we hear it from one another, and the more that we process it together as a community. The gospel is a word that must be spoken. And the more we speak it, the more fluent we become in it. So this isn't in my notes, but just feel compelled to do it. Let's, let's speak the gospel together. So I define the gospel as... God's work for us in Christ. That's probably the simplest definition. What are some other definitions of the gospel? Declare it to us right now. What is the gospel? Speak it out loud. Good news. What is the gospel? The word became flesh. So God sent his son Jesus to come dwell among us to live the life that we couldn't live, to die the death that we deserved in order to bring us into life forever with him. What else? One more, one more proclamation of the gospel. Hope in a future. That's fantastic. So like Paul in the church at Thessalonica, we too must grow in gospel-speaking boldness. And some of us quiver at this thought, right? For most of us, we fear speaking the gospel to other people, or we're insecure about saying it right, getting it wrong. What if I mess it up? What will they think about me? Many of us don't think we're good at speaking the gospel. But this passage reminds us of some realities that will help us grow in our gospel speaking boldness. So let, let's take a look at it. First, in verse 2, we see that it's God himself who gives us boldness. Paul says in verse 2, we had boldness in our God. And this freed them to speak the gospel of God. You know, it's not about you mustering up this courage or vigor to speak the gospel boldly on your own. 
It's about surrendering and submitting to God, saying that I cannot do this on my own, and letting him fill you with all of his resources. In God, if you're in Christ, you have all the resources you need to speak the gospel boldly in the midst of whatever circumstance you find yourself in. In this case, in Thessalonica, it was a context of persecution. In our case, it's a little bit different. But regardless of the situation we find ourselves in, God himself gives you the boldness in him to speak the gospel. And this passage also helps us see that boldness grows the more deeply we've been, we, the more deeply we realize that we've been approved by God. Look at verse 4. God himself has approved you to be a speaker of the gospel. <coughs> You're hired, right? You qualify. God actually wants you on his team. You know, have you ever been to a job interview and you think it went great, and then you find out a few weeks later that you didn't get the job? Has anyone had that experience? So half of us have felt that. The others of us are just <laughs> vocational superstars, man. I've experienced the rejection of not getting a job that I wanted. And how I feel when I get that email or that call is just disapproved, unqualified. And yet, as Christians, despite our lack of credentials and insufficient resources on our own, God approves of us and wants us to participate on his gospel-speaking team. And part of the job is realizing that we're deeply dependent on him. We need his spirit. And the spirit, after all, brings the power that we need to ignite the words that we speak, right? So part of the job is realizing I cannot do this on my own. Spirit, work through me. But you've been approved by God. And you've also, verse 4 continues, you've been entrusted by God with the gospel. Think about that. If the gospel is good news, God has entrusted you. He trusts you with his good news. He doesn't think you're going to mess it up. And if you do for some reason, he'll come in and fix it. Think about that. You've been entrusted with the very word of God himself. And our job is just to simply freely dispense it to other people. You've been entrusted with the gospel. He trusts you. One more thing to note in verses 4 through 6, that boldness in God grows, Paul would say, the more we stop trying to please people and inversely aim to please God. You know, people-pleasing robs us of many things in our lives, including boldness, because ultimately people-pleasing is all about me. How do I look in the eyes of other people? How do they perceive me? When people are big and God is small, my life is consumed with making a name for myself, protecting myself so I don't look foolish, and doing all that I can to ensure that people like me. Some of us in here, I know, struggle deeply with people-pleasing. We care so much about what other people think about us. And boldness of God can't develop in that context of self. Boldness grows when I decrease and he increases when I'm consumed with God's opinion of me, not my opinion of myself through the eyes of other people. Big difference there. 
So we see here that the gospel is to be spoken boldly, right? So Lord, make us bold. Give us boldness, we pray. But the gospel is also to be imparted gently. And this is why I call it a paradox of gospel ministry. Bold proclamation accompanied by gentle impartation. And both are necessary in our Christian lives. So look at verse 7. Verse 7. But, this is Paul speaking, we prove to be gentle among you. As a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children, having so fond an affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives. It's literally our own souls, the deepest parts of who they were. Impart to you the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you have become very dear to us. So this idea of imparting is, it's to pass on in the context of a loving relationship. It's different than proclamation. It's a passing on in the context of a close, deep, loving relationship. And that's what gospel ministry is about. It's about sharing life together, imparting to one another not just information, but facets of our own selves as well. And here Paul uses this illustration of a nursing mother tenderly caring for her own children. And keep in mind that that Paul here is in a position of authority and power, right? Yet in vulnerability, he lets others in. He doesn't keep them away. He takes a risk in his humility, not, not being blocked or barricaded by pride. He takes a risk and shares himself. He, he bears his own soul with these young Christians. Like a nursing mother, he, he opens himself up for those he loves. And many of you uh, have been mothers or are mothers or you've observed mothers. And it's this idea of, of bringing your child into your own life. It's this idea of, of linking them to the source of nourishment that God's created in you in order to feed them, but more so to comfort and care for so that they can develop and grow physically and emotionally, bringing them into your own life. And as a mother does with a newborn baby, this impartation is gentle. It's not abrasive. It's filled with tender care and fond affection. It's not rushed. It's not forced. It's not manufactured. So like Paul, like this church in Thessalonica, we too are invited to impart not just the gospel of God to one another, but also our own souls. We get to bring others in, bring others close so that they can experience the nourishment that we've received from the Lord. Now, now just to be clear, you haven't shared your own soul if you've only shared information at a cognitive level. It's important to share information at the cognitive level, but that's different from sharing your own soul. You share your soul with someone when you let them see what's really there at the emotional level. A fear that you have, an area of sin or struggle or guilt or shame. Maybe a frustration or a resentment that you just can't let go. Or on the positive side, a passion, a longing, a desire, a joy. You share your soul when you let people into your emotional realm. So either they can impart the gospel to you at this below-the-surface level, or so that you can help them see through your actual life how the gospel has deeply affected you. 
And this, as you'd expect, requires a gentle, nurturing heart full of humility and love. And now, to be honest, this is the part of the sermon that I'd much rather skip. Um, I'd rather just share with you the gospel of God without having to expose my own soul. Um, But to be faithful to the Lord, to be consistent with this text, um, I have to pause here and invite you in, okay? And I'm probably going to cry. Because as some of you know, this is not an area that I excel in. But I want to grow, and I'm seeking to grow here. So here's a glimpse into my own soul. Glad we got 15 minutes left, because this might take a while. So here's a glimpse into my own soul, and I hope it will help you see my continual need for God in the gospel. So, so these are four things that I've known about myself for a while, but have more clearly seen uh, throughout this process of regeneration that uh, Ashley and I and um, 14 other people are, we're piloting this ministry and praying, asking the Lord, is this something you'd like to see unrolled at Melanie Park Church next year? So through this process of regeneration... The Lord has, has put these things in my view far more clearly, um, and through some stuff I've created in, in, in my marriage, the Lord's helped bring these to uh, the surface as well. So, so here's four realities about Brian, okay? And maybe they'll resonate with you. <clears throat> I much prefer to isolate and be alone than to engage deeply at an emotional level and be fully known. I'm an isolator. Uh, Secondly, uh, when I sin, um, I'm prone to hide and to cover up or to just try to ignore it or forget that it ever happened rather than bringing it into the light through quick confession to be exposed so that I can walk in transparency and experience true healing. When I sin, I cover up. I don't want anyone to know. Three, I prefer, I've seen over the history of my Christian walk, I prefer to fake accountability, sharing just enough to make it seem like I'm being held accountable, but holding on to control what I actually want to control. I prefer to fake accountability um, to maintain control of what I actually want to maintain control of, rather than being fully honest and transparent and actually accountable. And then fourthly, Um, Sometimes I even keep people at a distance using my leadership platform here so that I don't have to get close, so that I don't have to be known or live in true vulnerability. Uh, Because for me, it's very uncomfortable to live there because I love to be in control. And I don't like people seeing my failures and my flaws. And I don't think I'm alone. So, so thinking about all this, um, actually last night and this morning, um, I, I was struck by this thought that I read from another pastor that I've applied to myself, but I want to share it with you. It's a pretty strong exhortation to myself, and perhaps it'll be a strong exhortation to you as well. So this is what this pastor said, and here's what I've applied to myself. Don't you ever think, Brian... 
that you can live a hidden, isolated, unaccountable, unknown life. That you can share the gospel message without sharing yourself. Be authentic. Be real. Be what you are. Hide nothing. No posing, no posturing. Share the gospel with others, but do so through the context of how it's affecting your own soul. So this is an area that God is pressing me to grow, as you can tell, and um, I think it's an area where we together can grow as a church. In the context of loving, gentle community, opening up our lives like we, maybe we've never done before to experience gospel transformation at levels far more deeply than maybe we've ever experienced before. So, so here at Melanie Park, um, small groups are the, are the primary context where we, where we want to see this happen. Uh, living life with a group of people uh, who know you, where you can be honest and open and still be loved. Regardless, completely flawed, yet deeply loved. And even within these small groups, perhaps there would be strong gospel friendships developed with the men and other relationships developed with the women where real accountability, sharing the deep stuff can actually happen. I know in some groups this is happening. I know in other groups this would be an area where I would love to see us grow. Where really deep life stuff, real emotional level stuff can be shared so that the gospel can be brought to bear on these areas of life. You know, it's easy to play church, isn't it? It's easy to show up on Sunday, everything's good. It's easy to show up at your small group meeting, everything's good. It's so easy for us to play church. But how empty is that? How much of a waste of time is that? There's far more exciting hobbies we can do than playing church. So if we're really going to live life together as a church family, let's not be afraid to get down to the deep stuff, the real stuff the hurt stuff, the sin stuff together. You know, true transformation results when we open up our own souls and impart to one another not only the gospel of God, but our true selves. Imparting the gospel at the emotional level, not merely the informational level. So if you're a small group leader in here, um, you're going to get the next quarterly equipping newsletter on April 2nd. And that version of the letter is going to be all about how do we help our groups open up our lives to one another. We've talked about, if you're a small group leader, you know this, we've talked about opening up our Bibles. The next step is how do we open up our lives to one another? And if you're in a small group, I'd invite you to pray through this. How can your group more deeply open up your own souls to one another? And if you're a leader, we want to equip you in that. We want to encourage you in that. And if you're not in a small group, this would be a great time to maybe enter into a small group to experience this deep life that Christ offers us in the gospel. So, let's, let's close this up here. You've been gracious. Um, when Christians and when churches start living like this, there is no doubt that God is at work among them, right? This is not how normal people live. This is not how normal people desire to live. When this happens, God is clearly at work. And this is how Paul did ministry. This is what the Thessalonian church imitated. And this is why, I think, the word of God sounded forth from among them. Again, people came, they experienced this like they never had experienced before, and they took it with them wherever they went. 
So Melanie Park family, as we close, let me exhort us to pursue what we've seen in these chapters this morning. Let's rejoice in the process of transformation that has come to us, and let's pursue growth in this paradox. Like the church in Thessalonia, Thessalonica, the gospel has come to us, right? Hallelujah. Where would we be if the gospel hadn't come to us? And while most of us in here, I think, have received the gospel, there are some who haven't. And maybe this morning, we invite you, this morning, put your trust in Christ. Put your hope in him for what he's done to rescue you from your sin and what he's going to do to return to complete the rescue. You know, believe that he's died in your place for your sins. Surrender your life and your will and your desires to him. Let him give you a new life with new hopes and new desires, new passions, new purpose. Today, if you feel him calling you, respond. Turn to him. Believe. And then all of us, let's continue turning to God away from idols more and more each day. You know, this is just the process of Christian life. We turn to God. We repent. We fall. We turn to God again. We repent. Let's live our lives looking back as we look ahead. And as our faith works, as our love labors, as our hope is set firmly on Christ, may we live fully engaged in this paradox of gospel ministry. Not sitting back passively, not shrinking back silently, but speaking the gospel with boldness to one another, to our unbelieving friends, and imparting the gospel gently to one another. Not only the gospel of God, but sharing our own souls letting people in, opening up our lives, sharing how we're actually doing, where we're struggling, where we're hurting, where we need Jesus to continue his rescue and restoration and redemption. And as we do this, our hope is that the gospel would sound forth from among us, out from this church to this city and to the very ends of the earth. So the reality is that just as God was at work 2,000 years ago in the church at Thessalonica, Thessalonica, um, God is continuing to do his work in the world. This process that we've seen of gospel transformation will continue until Christ returns, and it will not fail. The word will sound forth. And the only question is, Melanie Park family, will you participate? Will you play, will I play our part in the work that God's doing? So family, I, I hope this was encouraging to you. I know it was challenging to me. I would invite us. Let's be a family that opens up our very souls to one another and then speaks the truth of the gospel into those open places. Uh, let me pray for us, and then we'll call it a day. <coughs> uh, Father, just thank you that uh, you are at work. Uh, through the gospel, you've sent Jesus to be for us what we can't be for ourselves. You've sent the Spirit to work among us to do things that we would never think about doing on our own. So, Lord, may, may we here in Lubbock, Texas in 2020 be a church that, similar to the church at Thessalonica, has received the gospel. The gospel's at work among us, and the gospel is sounding forth from among us. Lord, be pleased to do these things. Let us become less so that you can become more. And would you continue creating in this church family just a, a culture of vulnerability and honesty about how we actually are so that you, by the gospel, can minister to us at the deepest places and transform us in ways that we never could have imagined. We pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. Hey, family, have a great day. Thanks for being here this morning.